everyone. I'm Jen Malott, and welcome to our latest edition of Essential Antitrust. Today, we are talking about breaking up and making up. In particular, we're going to talk about the increasing trend towards more and more contentious deal disputes, both with agencies and regulators and between merging parties. Now, I'm fortunate to be joined by three of my expert colleagues to share their experiences with you and give you a flavor of some of the considerations and tactics to have in mind for your transactions over the next year. First, we have Martin Klusman, who's a partner in our antitrust group based in Dusseldorf, who has significant experience in merger and cartel cases, both inside and outside of the courtroom. Nice to have you with us, Martin. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me. It's good fun to do this. And next, we have Nick Frey, who's a partner in our London office, where he specializes in competition law, commercial disputes, and class actions. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Thanks very much, Jen. Looking forward to it. And last but not least, we have Linda Martin, who's a partner in our disputes, litigation, and arbitration practice based in New York. And Linda's the co-head of our global class action and collective actions group. Hi, Linda. We're really happy to have you. Hey, Jen. Great to be here. So, Nick, maybe I could have you kick things off. You know, first and foremost, can you just give us deal disputes 101? What do we actually mean when we talk about a deal dispute? Yeah, I, I think it's a, a really it's a really good question because it's a broad umbrella term and that umbrella is is growing in size, I think, on an almost daily basis. And I I think if you're looking to to simplify it, there are three broad categories, and the, and the first is probably the broadest, and, and that would be disputes between transacting parties. And that can cover an increasing range of ills from buyers alleging material adverse effect, um, for example, as a result of diminution of value in in an asset during the pandemic. Or it could be sellers alleging breach of of reasonable endeavours obligations or breaches of hell or high water clauses in the regulatory context. I think the two other buckets, I think the the first one is, is appeals of agency decisions so uh, the, the likes of you know Hutchison O2 and, and things like that, and, and third parties also being involved, so interveners and others looking to challenge decisions, and then also um, procedural appeals of, of penalties in the context of the merger process, so relating to things like gun jumping. But I think that's that's how I break it down. So in the U.S., what happens is after the FTC or DOJ sue, the parties will need to decide whether they're going to abandon the transaction or defend against the suit that's been filed. And you can have similar suits, of course, that are filed by state attorney generals across the 50 United States. So they'll be similar to an FTC DOJ action. You also can have private party litigation. It's a challenge by somebody who's not one of the parties to the deal. It's rare to see, but it's not um, unheard of. About a month ago, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals here in the United States affirmed an order that required a divestiture following the successful challenge of a merger by a private party. It's interesting because suit there wasn't filed until four years after the transaction had closed. A jury had determined that there was a violation of the antitrust laws, a likelihood to reduce competition. And the court then found that certain other defenses weren't met. So there was a um, affirmance of a divestiture that much after a closing of a transaction. But those are rare. Yeah, I think from an EU perspective, I can I can only subscribe to what uh, my two colleagues have already set out. There is an increasing potential for disputes, both uh, with re- regard to what the regulator is doing and also 
with what potentially the other party or parties to a deal are doing. We have uh, in strategic mergers uh, an increased level of complication that leads to lengthy proceedings uh, with quite uncertain standards and questions of how long it will take to resolve certain issues. The predictability of whether or not a strategic deal will go through has come down significantly. The Commission has upped its game in throwing large case teams at cases and inventing uh, ever-changing new tests uh, that, that they apply. And in particular, there is an increasing focus on the pre-existing documents, which will have to be produced in large numbers in any of those more difficult cases, which means that uh, the pragmatic recommendation for the general counsel who is looking at a deal like this is that he should make sure that from day one or even before day one, he should involve um, integrated teams of not just corporate lawyers, but also regulatory lawyers, antitrust lawyers, who can give advice as to how to structure uh, the documentation for the deal. Thanks, Martin. I mean, I think that big picture look at this is useful. And, you know, a lot of the points that you just made, I think, would be things that we've been looking at in deals and SPAs for a long time. So, but of course, deal disputes is one of our 10 key themes for this year. And so I'd be interested to hear, you know, maybe Nick, if you want to kick this off, why are we focusing on this heavily and expecting this to be kind of such a central issue going forward, you know, compared to what was the case five or 10 years ago? Well, I think you're right, Jen. I mean, everyone's been aware of the concept of, of deal disputes. But I think when people have been speaking about that, certainly in, in Europe, a lot of the time, you know, the rhetoric has been around warranty claims and everyone knows there's a risk of warranty claims. And often it's around the edges. Sometimes you have bigger claims, but it's not as much of a focus in between deal parties. And I think that has shifted significantly over the last couple of years. And you see that in some cases coming to, to the fore recently, which are above the waterline, if you like. But I think we're seeing it in a lot of cases below the, the watermark, where I think parties are increasingly willing to look for litigation as an option in deals, not just to get out or extract themselves from deals, but to try and renegotiate or change the value proposition during the course of a, of a prolonged deal and often during the regulatory clearance process. And I think you're seeing more joined up um, approaches between antitrust lawyers and, and M&A lawyers and, and disputes lawyers at a, at a much earlier stage and, and looking at that on, on a global basis. What, what can certainly be said is that the predictability and reliability of the desired outcome is more difficult to achieve than five years or 10 years ago. It's not just about filling in a, a large form in good time, file it, and then wait until the, uh, uh, the examination period expires and the day before you will get your clearance decision. There is a lot of work to do these days before you even sign the SBA in terms of preparing for the regulatory filings. In today's world, it has become quite common in strategic merger cases, in particular in phase two cases in the European Union, that the Commission will, at the beginning of the second phase of the investigation, really ask for huge, huge volumes of internal documents, sometimes hundreds of thousands of documents of many custodians in all companies involved in the deal, sometimes even more than a million. And 
There is a, a new school, I would say, in believing what those pre-existing documents will tell the, uh, the reader. And uh, so there is a need for merging parties in difficult deals to know what they have in stock, to know what they have in their documents, which means you have to look at those documents before you go and notify the deal to be able to prepare the arguments that need to be forwarded if the commission should take issue with the one or the other uh, finding in those documents. The other thing is that uh, because of the short deadlines within merger control proceedings that everybody is working under, it has become a, a habit uh, to stop the clock, as the Commission uh, calls it, which means that they will issue a large request for documents to be produced uh, with a few days of answering period and then if the uh, party that is supposed to provide those documents within a few days isn't able to do so, the Commission will stop the clock until the party is in a position to do so. And of course, this is part of, of an exercise also on the Commission side to find more time to examine the merger, because if the clock doesn't run, this doesn't be, mean that they stop working. They will work uh, while the clock is not running, and, and so do the parties. So be prepared for such complications. Tell the managers early on that this is on the cards, that this will happen in most difficult cases and that it's nothing unusual if the clock is stopped or it takes several months longer than expected to get a merger cleared uh, in Europe. That has to be figured into the deal planning and, um, you know, in difficult deals. We did say a few years ago you have to plan for a period of 10 to 12 months to get a phase two cleared today, it's more like 18 months uh, because you have a longer precursor period, you have longer confidential guidance periods where the clocks are not running but you're in, involved uh, with the teams and, and dealing with the regulators. And last not least, uh, you have to be aware that the criteria is constantly uh, changing. It's no longer just about market shares and uh, increase in market shares and post-merger market scenarios, but the Commission is looking at lessening of competition, uh, it's looking at whether remedies can replicate the pre-merger competition fully and um, all of those standards are more difficult to uh, comprehend, are more difficult to discuss and are less predictable in, in outcome, which means that early on you also have to link up with your professional economist uh, to develop all those arguments that you need to to have at hand when you have to counter the, uh, the challenges that the Commission will bring. So in, in a nutshell, you need a lot more time and resources to deal with a phase two merger these days than five years ago. So that's interesting, Martin. And, and if I pick up on that document point you mentioned, I mean, obviously producing hundreds of thousands or a million documents has been sort of a mainstay of the US process for a while now. Um, but Linda, maybe you can tell us a bit about where the sands are shifting in the U.S. because it won't be on the document front, I don't think. Well, I think that there's the very obvious shifting of political tides here that I'd be surprised if anyone is, is not aware of. Certainly following the election we just had, we've ushered in a Democratic president, uh, a new presidential administration. And that party traditionally in the United States has been more inclined to intervene when it comes to challenging mergers. President Biden in January appointed a new acting chair of the FTC, Rebecca Slaughter. About a week ago, she provided testimony to the antitrust subcommittee of our House of Representatives. And she was talking some about 
curbing dominant tech companies in particular, but she expressed concern that there's been under deterrence in merger enforcement, that market forces have not done what uh, standing alone people maybe would have hoped or wished or closed a blind eye and thought could happen, at least in her view. So she has told Congress she supports bright line rules that will make it easier for agencies to challenge mergers they view as problematic. The one thing she said is that might lead to over deterrence of non-problematic mergers, but she said that she's actually more concerned with under deterrent than she is with over deterrence, which could have a real shift. But even prior to this new presidential administration, there was a bipartisan trend, I think, towards questioning whether the existing antitrust laws are sufficient or if they are sufficient but have been under-enforced. And I think there's been disagreement as well about whether the Trump administration could be viewed as having taken a more robust approach to challenging mergers, which certainly would be uh, atypical for a Republican administration. We saw, though, during his administration, challenges to the Sabre Fair logic deal, which the government lost, but also the Visa Plaid deal. And that's interesting, Linda. And and I think, you know, just keeping in, in the realm of, of examples, you know, I want to jump back to the first type of deal dispute that you and Nick mentioned at the outset, which is actual litigation between the parties to a transaction. And I wonder if, if you could give us, you know, an example or two of some of the cases that we're seeing of this type of, of dispute in recent years. Well, I think that one of the great examples, certainly from the U.S. courts, was the acquisition that was um, scheduled to take place in last year, 2020, of Tiffany & Co. by LVMH, Louis Vuitton. LVMH had the burden in that case of obtaining the antitrust approvals. As the COVID pandemic hit, we all know it, it hit retail shops, certainly at least for a period of time, maybe while there was some shifting to other forms of purchase, but sales lagged at least temporarily. And there had been a date set, it was in August of last year for obtaining certain antitrust approvals. But by that date, the applications had not even been filed in key jurisdictions. And LVMH announced in September 2020 that it wasn't going to close the deal due to challenges in obtaining these antitrust approvals. So ultimately, Tiffany, which was being acquired, sued LVMH and Chancery Court in Delaware based on this dragging of its feet on antitrust approval. So ultimately, you know, a breach of contract by LVMH, but it also asserted unclean hands and really, I think, saying what was the real motivation here of LVMH in claiming that the antitrust approvals were the real issue. So in the meantime, LVMH countersued and claimed that Tiffany was no longer the business that it had agreed to purchase. So it declared an MAE, material adverse effect. And I think that's what people will typically sort of look to see in these sort of um, situations where there's a dramatic turn in the industry. What MAE clauses, of course, are designed to do is to see if there is a bigger impact on changes in that overall uh, marketplace on your particular target. So your target needs to have been affected more than others in that same industry were affected. So while LVMH was declaring an MAE, those are traditionally hard cases to win here in the US. It said the company was mismanaged. There was some real bad blood being uh, thrown about, nasty war of words. It claimed the company was over leveraged, that it was not operating in the ordinary course. So it was very acrimonious. In the end, the dispute was resolved, but not before the merger was renegotiated at a discount of $425 million. And we saw a similar result when we represented Wex Inc. Uh, in an acquisition. 
all of these things, the antitrust regulatory approval, the other contractual provisions come together and you have to think about the whole package and not just how the little bits of this will all all proceed. But I do want to move on to the other type of dispute that, that you mentioned in the outset, which is a dispute with one of the merger control regulators. And, you know, Martin, I wonder, are there any um, examples from your side of the pond that are particularly informative here? Yes, Jen, I think uh, there is a process which we briefly touched upon earlier in Europe that means that you can appeal final and binding prohibition decisions, but also clearance decisions that the EU Commission has issued. So the Commission will come to a conclusion, issue a lengthy decision, which is usually you know, a couple of hundred pages of reasoning why a merger is prohibited. And then the merging parties can both appeal. You know, the, the vendor and the seller or the joint venture partners can all appeal this decision to the European courts. And they can bring an, an action for annulment, which is technically a full lawsuit. And the uh, European court is, is meant to review all the pleas that uh, the parties put in. It will not ex officio deal with the whole case again, but just look at the pleas that are made and the challenges that are brought to its attention. And then the court can annul the decision, partially annul it as a consequence of that. It's fair to say that there have been more cases against clearance decisions filed by competitors or interested third parties than there have been court cases brought by parties that were suffering from a prohibition decision. That is partly because it takes so long to go through the motions. Uh, The court case will take three years at first instance, plus another two years if you go to file it to the European Court of Justice uh, on appeal. And uh, in very few cases will parties have the time and money uh, to wait five years for a decision to be reversed, which the stock market will take as a prohibition the moment it comes out. So this explains why there are not so many cases, but this is the process we have, and I I envy uh, our US colleagues a bit for their process, which I think is much better in in terms of making sure that the authorities are uh, sticking to their limits and are not uh, trying to go over the top, because they have a real threat of litigation coming their way. Uh, the way it works. But but Linda is better placed to explain that. Well, although, as I mentioned, I think we may start to see a perhaps over-deterrence than under-deterrence, certainly if our acting FTC uh, chair has her way. But, you know, we've had high-profile cases here in the United States in recent years, too. One example, February of last year, Evonik Industries, which is a German-based specialty chemicals company, working with a team of my colleagues in D.C. from Freshfields, won a landmark victory in litigation that was brought by the FTC trying to block Ivonik's acquisition of a Philadelphia headquartered company, Proxychem. It was the first time that the FTC had been defeated at trial since 2015. I think it speaks to something that Rebecca Slaughter, the FTC, had uh, had said, which is there's maybe been a tendency for the FTC here to sue only when it can um, win a case. And I think there it certainly thought it could win that case. But uh, we were able to defeat the FTC's challenge. We may start to see them suing in cases where they really aren't sure that they'll prevail. That's a good example, Linda. And maybe I can ask Martin and Nick if you guys want to toot your own horns as well. What are some of the recent marquee cases that we've been involved with on the other side of the pond? Well, I think here, as I said, there have been less cases 
going to trial as far as prohibition decisions are concerned. But there have been two cases. In, in both cases, you know, the decision, the negative decision was overturned in court. The first one was the C.K. Hutchison merger with O2 UK, which was a 2016 decision of the European Commission that got challenged and Freshfields represented C.K. Hutchison in that and won. And the second one, quite prominent as well, is the UPS TNT contemplated merger, which also is a 2013 decision that went to the General Court and subsequently to uh, appeal with the Court of Justice. So in both cases, we could uh, ensure a win for our clients. And now we have a third case pending, which is coming up for trial, which is the uh, more recent 2019 uh, ThyssenKorp uh, TK Tata decision where the commission prohibited a large contemplated European steel merger for, f for flat carbon steel products. There we will see an oral hearing in late April 2021 and see how it goes there. But some of the issues are similar to those that, that featured in the other two cases. So we're quite um, looking forward to that. But as you can see, not many cases. <laughs> In the UK as well, which obviously now stands stands apart from our EU friends in a slightly different way. I mean, we we acted for JD Sports in in the appeal of the of the CMA's um, phase two prohibition decision in the in the JD Sports Foot Asylum merger, and uh, I mean in in that case we were specifically brought in to help with that uh, appeal phase and. It was only the second case where there's been this type of successful appeal on our part, and it was sent back to uh, to the CMA for for reconsideration as as a whole. I mean, more broadly in, in the UK, and I expect this to happen increasingly with a more uh, aggressive competition authority. We're seeing a lot more interest in these type of appeals, not just from the merging parties, but from third parties looking to see what their options are. In, in contested mergers. It's great to hear about all these cases. And, you know, I'm sure that uh, companies that are, are listening may be thinking that this all sounds very scary and, you know, they don't want to wind up in any of these uh, litigations, I would think. Practically speaking, how do companies deal with this risk? So, you know, Martin, when you're sitting down with a company that's about to embark on a bet the company deal, what are the things that you tell them they should have front of mind and be you know, thinking about during that process? I think the main message we're giving these days is be prepared and be more prepared than you would normally think you should be prepared for the upcoming regulatory approval process. Business people have to understand that they have to allow for a couple of months time to prepare for the filings, but also the substantive issues. And that is typically the the time during which also the deal agreements are being negotiated. So it's you have to do it both and not in sequence at the same time. You have to prepare for the filings. You have to get an impression of what the internal documents will say. You have to line up the economists and listen to what arguments they see being successful or not. And you have to make sure that the SPA and other deal documentation will reflect the risk profile of the case in terms of making sure that there are sufficient obligations on the other parties to support the processes, also to allow for a long enough period to deal with the regulators by implementing a long enough long stop date, by not falsely incentivizing parties um, in terms of breakup fees and similar mechanisms to 
increase the pressure on the regulatory approval process. And last not least, also to think early on about potential remedies and how they could look like and who could be a potential uh, remedy taker for those remedies, because this needs to be in your toolbox at any point uh, during the process and proceedings to be pulled out. And you cannot just start working on this uh, when the day comes. You have to be lining up all of those points, ideally before you actually sign the SPA, at least before you file your Form CO or other voluminous notification around the, the globe. And last not least also, of course, multi-J filings should be mentioned. Uh, in typical large cases, you will have to do this kind of work for a number of jurisdictions, including on the foreign investment part where this is required. Typically, you're looking at multiple difficult filings around the globe and you need an integrated team, M&A, competition lawyers, and also sometimes some litigators to look at those issues and risks up front and be prepared. If, if, if I jump in there as well, I agree with, with everything Martin's said, apart from the reference to sometimes litigators. I think litigators are always a core, a core part of deals going forward. And I think there are, along with the integrated team, it's really important that you have a, a really integrated approach to the deal documents and you strategize around that. And I'm sure Linda will have views on, on some of these points as well. But I, I think one of the key risk areas I see is just in terms of how you make your um, provisions enforceable. And a lot of time terms are bandied about and people talk about hell or high water or specific performance. And I've talked to many M&A lawyers say, well, we have a specific performance provision. It's like, well, what, what, what do you actually do to perform under that? provision and really thinking about what is enforceable and if you have a if you have a provision that requires somebody to provide drafts of documents to, to a regulator before they file them how are you actually going to enforce that are you going to go into court and junk them effectively to provide those drafts and and just thinking through those sort of step plans and how you best protect yourself ahead of a of a process and assuming i think from the outset that there's a risk that there could be disputes, whether it's in the regulatory context or, or otherwise. And I think some types of terms we specifically see it in, in relation to that are reverse termination fees, for example, that become due if parties fail to receive the, the required regulatory approvals. And I think we're also seeing increasingly heavy negotiations around long stop dates and parties thinking early about strategies on on that front when they think there are risks with with regulatory clearance processes or if timing becomes of the essence for for various reasons so it's a, it's a really important area to get right early on nick i absolutely agree with you on several points first the importance of including litigators up front not just to potentially eliminate the risk of litigation although sometimes that can happen but if litigation does follow litigators have been involved in helping to frame things. So then you can hopefully get through a litigation, um, less, less time, less costs. But it's important to be sufficiently specific and, and clear around the risks that you're negotiating with your counterparty. So good deal documents are going to detail the types of actions that are required to satisfy merger control processes, for example. They're not just going to say as promptly as practicable. They'll say in phase one or the equivalent or without a U.S. second request. And it's also going to reflect negotiated terms 
that are specific to jurisdictions in which the clearance is required. If you just have terms that are global as to every jurisdiction in which you operate, we've already talked about a number of procedural and substantive differences between the US and the UK, EU. So you may end up with terms that work in one jurisdiction, but not in another. They just may make no sense in certain countries. Thanks all thanks all for those tips. Um, I, I'm going to throw one last question at you, which is, you know, obviously a lot of change happening here in the last couple of years, but looking forward, what future change do you expect in this arena? Nick? Continued evolution in, in broad terms. I think from a competition litigation perspective, authorities are increasingly cooperating globally and companies are increasingly thinking strategically, globally and cross-practice. And I think being as prepared as possible when you enter into a deal and marrying up all of the disciplines to, to, to really make sure you put yourself in the best position can really be incredibly powerful. And I expect that trend of, of early planning and cross-border and cross-discipline thinking to, to expand over the next few years. Yeah, I think that certainly if we we can expect to see that if a deal breaks down, the regulatory approval process is going to be teed up. Parties just need to be uh, very clear about reasonable expectations of timelines on their deals and scope that up front. But I think very important, people need to be aware that it's not just competition approvals, but also the foreign direct investment or FDI approval landscape, which has exploded in the past few years. And unfortunately, I think we're finding regimes, particularly there's the U.S. regime, but there's now many regimes outside the U.S. on this. And there's some fuzzy timelines and standards. And so all of that can really throw a wrench in things. That careful coordination and planning ahead of time is really the best way to make sure you can navigate your transaction without problems. I can echo that from a from an EU perspective. Uh, we should also be mindful that there are, in the meantime, very many jurisdictions around the globe, not just in FTI, but also in merger control regimes, which have a demanding set of rules uh, to comply with. And in many deals that we see these days, it's not just the traditional uh, mature merger control nations of this world, um, you know, having lengthy and difficult procedures, but also newcomers who have been on the scene only for a couple of years, but are quickly and rapidly developing this type of regulatory business for their countries and their regions. So it's not just the EU and the US and the UK, it's many more. And secondly, I think we will see a trend to even more scrutiny uh, being applied in less cases, and the cases will be larger. Uh, there will be fewer cases, but larger cases, and no stone will be left unturned by the authorities which is the trend because they think this is the way to make sure that the decisions cannot be successfully challenged in court. And they're even considering to have new entry rules for mergers to be scrutinized at EU level. Uh, they are now trying to reactivate the old Dutch clause in the EU merger control regime, which means that member states can refer cases to the EU to be reviewed, even if neither the member state nor the EU would normally be in a position to look at the merger due to the merger control thresholds not being met. But there is a way to uh, reactivate this provision and Commissioner Vestager has announced that she will do so pretty soon. So we will have an additional layer of uncertainty because we will not know whether 
a non-reportable transaction may become reportable because a member state will refer it to the EU for review. So that's for startups, that's for tech companies, that's for all the unicorn uh, cases that are out there in many industries, tech, pharma, uh, consumer products. So it'll be interesting times, but I'm pretty sure that the complication levels will even increase further. Well, we'll all, I guess, look forward to that increase in complication. But for today, I think we are uh, at the end of our time. So I want to thank Linda, Nick, and Martin for taking the time to share all your expertise. It was great to have you. And thanks very much to everybody who listened in. We request that you keep sending us your feedback and let us know what you'd like to hear on future episodes at essentialantitrust at freshfields.com. We wish you all a good day, and we'll see you next time with more Essential Antitrust.